If you just try to sink big down payments into properties, you'll run out of money. If you put your money in, you make the property worth more, you build equity, then you refinance and get that capital back, you can do this with more volume. So the big question is this, how do most agents who don't have access to the secrets that most successful agents hoard to themselves grow and prosper in today's competitive real estate environment? That's the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Pat Hyben, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. I am so excited about the podcast that I just got to record with my good friend, David Green. I've been trying to get David to get on our podcast for so long. You know, David is one of the hosts of the Bigger Pockets podcast, you know, the biggest real estate podcast out there, you know, for investors. But a lot of people might not know that he is also a super, super successful real estate agent. He's been listening to the Real Estate Rockstars radio podcast for many, many years since it started. You know, he actually shares a story of a tip that he heard while listening to our podcast that helped him get six or seven, you know, transactions from it. Uh, other customers. And uh, it's really, really exciting to have him on here. We got to talk about you know, real estate investing. We got to talk about you know tips with being an agent and really how his career transitioned from kind of, you know, he had become an accidental real estate investor and an accidental agent to where now he's growing a huge team and trying to hire more people in the Bay Area to join it. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Listen and let me know what you think. Rockstar Nation, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. I'm so pumped. I've been trying to get this interview for so long. Good friend of mine, David Green. He's always been super busy because he is one of the hosts of the Bigger Pockets podcast. You know, David Green, he also runs the David Green team with Keller Williams out in the Bay Area. You know, he has a great story of his of of being in real estate. You know, he loves real estate. He loves studying it. He loves, you know, being an agent and having a team and everything else. All around great guy. There's gonna be so much fun stuff we get to talk about today and the and glad I finally got you on here. David, how's it going today, man? Aaron, it's great, man. The sun is out. It's another crazy, good, busy day. It's funny when you're an agent because you're either complaining that you're too busy and you don't have time to do everything or you're complaining that you're not busy enough and you're not making any money. But you're always looking at something like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're, either, you're either always half full or you're all, or always half, but it's like as an agent, every day is a grind, right? Like the there's always something to do if you're not answering your phone, yep. uh, something else happens. Yeah, and it's I, just like when you're like buying houses to flip or buying rentals, the, the more successful you are, the more problems you're going to have with, with contractors and lenders and, and like problems that come up. And you almost have to learn to look at things going wrong like a badge of honor because it means you're taking a lot of action and you're doing a lot. Dude, I love that perspective. So the I, I'm in I'm I'm actually traveling in in Maui right now. I missed you by just a day. Yeah, you did. So I'm I'm on vacation, and yesterday the I'm getting all these calls from a a buyer's agent from a house that we're selling. All these like little complaints over, you know, there's there's trash left in the trash cans, and we're gonna charge you 250 bucks. And and I'm thinking like I'm on vacation. Why do you keep blowing up my phone right now mm-hmm. over over something like that? But you're right. The if we thought about all of our stuff like that, instead of going like, man, sometimes I hate transactions to going like, this is a badge of honor. Like the, if I wasn't busy all the time, this wouldn't happen. Like no one would be calling me on vacation or, or if I wasn't yep. closing that deal, nobody, if it was just an active listing, it would suck. I'm glad it's an escrow. 
A hundred percent. And another thing I'm always telling my team members when they get frustrated that a transaction wasn't easy is like, you should be thanking God that you had this problem because when transactions don't require someone to jump in and be creative and fix it, they won't need agents anymore. It's not like the world loves real estate agents and they're doing everything that they can to keep us a part of the transaction. All, when people see agent, all they think is commission that I don't want to have to pay. And the only reason that agents have like firmly embedded themselves into this world is because things are always going wrong. And there has to be a person to A, fix it and B, communicate what was done and help kind of calm the client's emotions down. So that was something I had to just embrace and make peace with was that when my clients are freaking out and I'm irritated that I have to talk to them on the phone or like I just got out of a meeting with my team and we've got about 25 houses in escrow right now. So when you've got that many in, at one time, they're gonna, or be, there's going to be problems. There's no way you're going to avoid it. When you have four or five in escrow at a time, you're dealing with a couple problems. So you got to amplify that by five or six. It's tons of stuff going wrong. And if you let that ruin your mood, ruin your attitude, make you not like your job, it's going to affect your lead generation. It's going to affect your attitude when you talk to people. It's going to affect your bottom line. You just got to make peace with the fact that, thank God, stuff's going wrong because that's why I have a job. That's why I'm making my commission. That's why people are always going to need me because there's always stuff going wrong. And that was kind of a big thing. I know we, we just jumped off talking about this. That's weird. Go girl, yeah. It was a big thing that I had to embrace personally because I was always frustrated. Why do people have to need so much handholding? Why do I have to calm people down all the time? Why can't they just be like me who does this for my own self and buys houses all the time and not worry about it until I started to see how much people really just don't like real estate agents. The world doesn't like us. Right? Agents, we know what we do behind the scenes, but nobody else really does. Our clients see what we show them. That's just how real estate works. You could be a terrible agent and your client would never know it because you're never going to tell them all the mistakes you made. You're going to blame it on the lender, blame it on the title company, blame it on the other side. Uh, so people don't understand like what actually goes on with real estate agents. And so they're just going to resent that they have to use one in a transaction. And so you have to be grateful that you're needed and you're needed when things go wrong. Yeah. The, it's a lot of, when I'm teaching people about foreclosures in the courthouse steps, I, it's a, a similar philosophy where I say, you have to fall in love with the problem because mm -hmm. people get discouraged and they're like, no, I drove all these houses and I showed up and, and my house didn't go, only one house sold. You're like, yeah, that could be discouraging, but you also need to fall in love with the problem because if it was easy, Everyone everybody would be, would be doing, doing, it. doing it. Yeah. Or they wouldn't need it's, you. If, if, yeah, if, they, if you didn't have to hold their hands, they'd be doing for sale by owners. They'd do it themselves. The, you're uh, buying the problem. The whole reason there's an opportunity is there's a problem tied to it. It doesn't make sense when you criticize, oh, that's too much work. Like, oh, you don't, it's the same thing when I'm representing buyers, right? Well, this house needs this and it needs that and it's not upgraded and it's not on the water. I wish it had all those things and I'd buy it. And I'll be like, yeah, if it had all those things, it'd be 30% more money and you wouldn't be able to afford it. Right. And then if you could, you'd be saying, well, I want a bigger one. <laughs> you have to be okay. Like the problem is the opportunity. You're hundred percent right. And the quicker you make peace with that, the quicker your business will actually scale because your subconscious isn't fighting you saying, I don't want to deal with this. And I don't want to deal with that. That's so funny. I, I'm so glad to hear that from you today. Cause that's something that I preach, but I needed to hear that today as the reminder to be like, <laughs> you know, cause I was like so ticked off with this agent for like ruining my vacation with this idea. Uh -huh. like, no, this is why we make money in this business. This is why this, we could make a career out of this because it's not easy as, as we jump in. Now, sorry, 25 houses in escrow. The, mm -hmm. How many people are on your team? Because 25 houses in the Bay Area, that's, that's a huge volume, right? What's the, how much do your houses sell for out there right now? I think my average sale price is probably between 800 and 900,000 on those. There's a big jump. So like the stuff in the San Francisco South Bay, it's all over a million. So probably half of them are over a million. And then the other half are kind of like the East Bay where prices can range anywhere from 500 to 650. And then you've got the kind of the area in between the far East Bay and San Francisco where you're in that 800, $900,000 range. So it is, 
it's not, I hear people sometimes when I go to events, like uh, they sell houses in Kansas city or something like that. And their price points, 80,000. And they tell me, well, it's the same amount of work, right? I got to sell 150 houses, but it's the same work. And I always wonder, cause I've never sold out there. So I don't know, but is it really the same amount of work? Like how often do you have 15 to 20 other buyers trying to buy that same property as you? And you have to be able to convince your client why spending $200,000 over the list price is actually a smart financial decision and finding comps that would support why that would be the case, right? Like how often do you have to manage a full rehab of a listing that you're going to take and know how contractors work and know how to help them spend the money the best way? So it's harder, I think, when you're in a, in a more expensive market, there's more competition, right? Like everybody out here is a real estate agent. They just, you can sell three houses a year and you can make $50,000. So there's a lot of people that are doing that. Um, I think your original question was just like, I have 25 in escrow. How am I doing? I, I totally went on a tangent there. Dude. Well, it, it's a good point though, because you're right. You're in this hot real estate market right now. So it's a hot real estate market. Prices are going up. You see pictures of like this little shack sold for 4 million bucks in the mm-hmm. area. Like what's going on? And people think, and again, people like you said, hate real estate agents or they think you're overpaid. And so, but you're actually saying like, even though it's a hot market where people are like, oh, it's so easy to be a real estate agent during a hot market. Like, no, it's way harder because yeah. you're competing against 17 other people to do this, you know, yep. to get, to get the job because everybody wants to be a real estate agent and they expect so much more out of you. If the commission is 50,000 bucks on a house, like they expect you to like take their dog to dog care. They expect you to wash their car. <clears throat> you like, they're, uh-huh. they're like, say, what can I have you do as my agent? Because I'm giving you this money. You're like, trust me, I'm giving you the house of your dreams. Yeah. And I'm trying to keep you from paying more than you would need to pay. Right. Or when the, another thing they'll come in, it's a hot market. Everyone say, well, just go get a listing. Then you don't have to worry about it. Oh, okay. Just go get a listing when everyone else is trying to get the listing. Well, yeah. what happens is all the other agents say, well, I'll do it for 1%. Cause even at 1%, they might still be making like 10, $15,000. And that's, that's better than they were going to make. So now you got to compete with the person who's undercutting the industry and saying, well, I'll just be the cheapest. I'll come in and I'll be the Walmart. And that's my value proposition. And you got to convince the seller why paying you 3% is still better for them. Because in the more expensive the house is, people think that it's more expensive, so I should discount the commission. They don't understand that the more expensive the house is, the more you stand to lose by getting a bad agent. Like yeah. I can routinely negotiate way over asking prices for my listings when I'm already priced at the top of the neighborhood. Sometimes when I only get one offer. You just get the other side to think that you've got more than one and they have to be really aggressive to take it. I mean, I think I've got three listings in escrow that we listed in the 500 to 600 range that went 80 grand over on average between the three. And most of them, two of them got one offer. The other one got three. It's, it's often that like they don't even appraise as high as we were able to negotiate the price. We just did such a good job. And those sellers, if you look at the 1% or 2% they're trying to save, the five or 10 grand versus the 80 grand that they could be losing by going at the wrong agent. It's a terrible move for them. But because there's so many agents that are coming in, giving bad advice that sell one or two homes a year, like the guy you were talking about, if he's messaging you while you're in Hawaii to tell you that there was trash in the trash can, that's a guy who's got one house in escrow. He's yeah. babysitting the heck out of it. Cause that's all that he has to do. And that's what he does to avoid getting on the phone and looking for another client. There's a lot of that when you get into a hot market like this. Yeah. Well, it's a great point too, whether it's a million dollar house or a hundred thousand dollar house, like agents out there, it's like knowing your value and knowing your worth because the, as an investor, there's a lot of times I'll use flat rate listing agents and things like that. But you know, I had a, a, a friend of mine listing a house for me in, in Portland, Oregon, and I'm used lately, my average <laughs> price points are like two or $300,000, but it's a $900,000 house. Mm-hmm. And the, and when we finally get that thing in escrow, I'm like, you know, I, I was going to take a loss on it. So I'm like, just take 800. I just want to be done. 
So we lower the price. He all of a sudden gets two or three offers. I'm ready to take any one of them. And he gets me an extra $60,000. Like yep. he, he does, he does the negotiation. He goes, Aaron, you were okay with 800. I'm getting you 860. And it was, it's funny. I've done, I've done a couple thousand flips. Right. And it was just in the last couple of years where it really stood out to me that like, no, the difference of a great agent versus an average agent pays for it, like absolutely pays for itself. So if you're an agent, go be a winner. If you're hiring agents, hire winners and the, and rather than try to get a few thousand bucks off, like just find the guys that are going to get you that extra money. That's, it's that's such, absolute. it's so big, especially at these big price points. Like one trick that I'll share that if agents, if you're not doing this, you need to stop right now is Like one of the things I've realized is that when you're trying to buy a house, when you're representing a buyer, all the power is in the listing agent's hands. Okay. They are like the hot girl at the bar and every guy's lined up to try to buy them a drink and they're in complete control of that. They pick and choose who they're nice to, who they're rude to, who they ignore, who they dismiss. There's nothing those guys can do. Well, the second that you actually go into escrow on a deal, all the power shifts to the buyer. Sellers can't back out of a deal. Sellers can't say, oh, the house appraised for more. I want you to to increase your price. Sellers can't say, wow, my inspection was amazing. Give me another $5,000 because this house is in better shape than you thought it would be. But buyers can do all of that. So all the power shifts into the buyer's hands. They completely take over the wheel and they're the ones driving. And so as a listing agent, you have to understand buyer's agents are going to tell you every single thing you want to hear. They're going to be that guy who's going after that girl at the bar. They're going to lie to her. They're going to say anything that they have to. They're going to tell her they're a millionaire and they've got a, you know, a, a house in Tuscany. They're going to whisk her away there. They're going to tell you everything you want. The second it goes into contract, all that changes, right? And their, and their clients get buyer's remorse every time a house goes into contract. They get scared thinking, oh my God, what did I just do? So I anticipate what are the areas where you're going to hurt me once we go into contract? And you just look at their contingencies. So their loan contingency, their appraisal contingency, and their inspection contingencies are the three ways that a buyer can get money back from a seller. So when I have several buyers, what I do is I try to remove as much of the power to do that as possible. I talk to the lender and I make sure that they actually have all that client stuff squared away and they're a really good candidate. I usually try to negotiate if it appraises low, you're going to pay up to $20,000 over the appraised price or whatever I think I can get or get them to waive that appraisal contingency altogether. But the number one thing, that top producing agents know is their deals fall apart because of inspections. So if you get an inspection report back that shows there's $12,000 worth of section one damage and $5,000 worth of miscellaneous damage and $4,000 worth of roof damage, there's $20,000. The buyers are going to say, I'm backing out unless you pay for all my closing costs and lower the price by five grand, something like that. And you're going to have to do it. Or you're going to have to go back on the market, wait another two months, make two more mortgage payments before you can go into contract. So what I have my clients do is we get our inspections ahead of time. I have the client pay for a home inspection and a pest inspection. Roof inspections I hear are typically free. And I give it to the buyer before we even go into contract when I still have all the power. When I get to choose which of these offers I'm going to take. And when they're in the honeymoon phase, they still think that this is the most amazing house ever. And I say, ask for whatever repairs you want up front and you're waiving your inspection contingency because we've already done these. You tell us what you want. And then inevitably, one of the other buyers comes in and says, oh, well, I'm not asking for any of that. I'll just take it as is at this price. So they don't even really get to ask for what they really want because somebody else is going to say, well, I won't do it. So they're going to have to waive it. And your client spending like 800 bucks on inspections will save them five to $10,000 later because there's no negotiating power for the buyer. That one little trick will more than cover the commission that most listing or most, sorry, most sellers are trying to get the listing agents to drop their, their money by. 
I don't want to pay 3%. I want to pay two to, to that person, right? That extra five grand is more than covered by just this one little thing. So there's so many things agents can do if they care about their job to earn more money for their clients and then keep their commission. That, that is, that's really great advice at the beginning, especially buyers at the beginning of the transaction. They're in the honeymoon phase. They're excited about the property and they aren't even thinking about the little things that cause different nets to the seller. They're not, you know, the home inspection <clears throat> stuff, the home warranties, all that extra stuff that costs money. Buyers are thinking about this is the price I want to yep. pay and here's my credits that I need for the loan or whatever, or here's the price I want to pay because that's what's in their head. And there's so many extra things that change that bottom line. And then by being able to negotiate ahead of time, because yes, the transaction is someone gets an escrow, they get an inspection. After that, they get a credit back. And you're saying, no, right now I've got three offers. Here's the inspection. There you go. Like put it right now at the beginning and then you won't do it later. Or you could do the credit right at the beginning. All right, we're going to give you this credit. So that way you can't even like question the amount of work, but you know, at the beginning uh, when people are excited, then it's you know one less thing to worry about. I think that's great. Totally. I totally do that. So like on this last house, I was telling you about that listed at like 500 and I got under contract at 580. I, because the agent was willing, was her client was willing to come up to 580, but she wasn't happy about it. I knew the minute we go into contract, she now has the power. She's going to look for some reason to get us back. Yep. You can get right? back. You know that that's coming. So what I said is, hey, just because your client's been so awesome to work with and she's done everything we asked, I'm going to just voluntarily give you guys $5,000 credit towards your closing costs just as a sign of goodwill because I really appreciate how hard you've worked to help put this deal together. That psychologically gave the buyer this understanding of, oh, they're not screwing me. They're giving me $5,000. And then when they, if, if they would decide to get inspections, even though we gave it to them, I'm going to say, well, yeah, we gave you $5,000 to cover that. There's no way that that actually costs $5,000, right? Or yeah, there's a total of $7,000. We're already giving you five. That's more than half of it. Or I'll have some bargaining chip so that they won't come back and ask for more. And does my client care that they had to give $5,000 in closing costs to get $80,000 more than what like fair market value really would be? Yeah right? You have to understand as an agent that you're, we make decisions typically based on what we understand about real estate. Our clients just make it on their emotions. They're going to get hit with emotional waves. So if you can anticipate those and limit how much the buyers, how much ammunition that they have once you're in contract, you can save your clients so much money. And then you'll have the confidence to stand up to them and say, absolutely not. I'm not going to work for 1%. Yeah. Being able to show that. I think that those are great tips. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. And as you know, when you've been hearing these episodes, so many of our guests give us lots of free gifts and share the tools they've been using to become successful. We've got free real estate tools, scripts, eBooks, marketing materials, and more. We keep track of everything in our vault and it's updated with new items each and every week. If you want access to that stuff, it's totally free for being a listener. All you have to do is go to agentsuccesstoolbox.com, agentsuccesstoolbox.com and get your free gifts now. Switching gear a little bit. When you and I were hanging out in Dallas a few weeks ago, the you know, at the at the the big the big convention, we started talking about the Real Estate Rockstars podcast and how you've been a listener for so long. And the and as a new agent, there were some tips that you got that you applied it. Well, can you tell us about that a little bit? Like what was what what was that tip and and just oh, listening to a yeah. podcast and how to go? You remember this one? This is why I'm so I'm so in love with podcasts, right? Because there's so many ways to make money in real estate and. And they don't all work for everybody. Like I'm never going to be a door knocker. I went door knocking one time 
the first guy that basically was like rude to me, I was like calling, like calling him a door warrior for the other side of his own house. Like, why don't you come out here and say that to my face, big guy? And I realized like, what am I doing? Why is this guy ever going to be my client? I'm not a door knocker. I shouldn't do it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try real estate because there's a million things that will work. And I heard somebody uh, that was being interviewed, they were newer agents in like the Santa Rosa area in California, I think. And they were saying how they help their clients on moving day. They're like, yeah, we don't, we're new. We don't have a ton of clients. So the ones we have, we just give them everything we got. When they, when they sell their house, we show up on moving day. We rent a U-Haul truck. We load up all their furniture. Uh, we carry all the boxes down and we load them up. We drive it to the new house. We unload it for them. We just go over and above and beyond. And I thought, oh, I could totally do that. That's a great idea. So I took it a step further. I said, okay, uh, I'm going to rent the U-Haul truck. I'm going to pay some guys like 12 bucks an hour to show up and help me. I'm going to send boxes to the client that are branded with my, my picture and my name and stuff on it so that they keep them around. I'm going to tell them to pack up all their stuff before we put, we like let their people see the home. So I just, you're going to have to pack anyways. You might as well get it all packed up and stick it in your garage before we even put your house on the market. That helps us because the house shows better when it's not full of cluttered stuff. It also psychologically prepares the seller. Like you're already packed up and moving. You're going to take whatever comes our way. We're not going to, we're not going to be like, oh, that's four grand less than I thought. I don't want to sell my house type of a thing. Then on moving day, I show up. And the story I was telling you is I had a friend who I called just to check in with a part of lead generation. And she said, Oh, you know, I, we're thinking about, we've always wanted to move into this neighborhood, but we can't afford it. So we started a conversation about how much equity they have in their house. They had a lot. And I was able to say, look, if you took equity from this house and you put it in the area that you want to be, you can buy a house for $900,000 in the neighborhoods you want to be. And your payments not really going up that much. Interest rates are lower. You have PMI, you wouldn't have PMI. We kind of ran through the numbers and they got super excited. So I sold their house. We got 70,000 more than what we thought we were going to get, which was aggressive. We went and got them another house that was 950 grand. So there was like about $1.7 million worth of sales just off these two homes. Well, on moving day, I show up and I help them move. And I meet grandma and I meet aunt and I meet the cousins and I meet their new neighbors and I meet their friends. I meet all the people who show up on moving day, which typically are like the people who love you the most in life. Nobody wants to be there. On Wait, nobody day. wants to be there on moving day for sure. That's exactly. That's where you find out who your real friends are. Right. <laughs> and I have my assistant send pizzas and soda to everybody. Cause we're all running around. Everybody's hungry. They're all working hard. We're going up and down stairs. It's the middle of like July. It's a hundred something degrees in California. And they all see me just sweating and working hard and happy. And you get to know these people and they realize like, I trust that guy. That's a good agent. So, Fast forward, I end up selling aunt's house for around 870000 I then sell grandma's house for 740000 I help aunt and grandma buy a house they could all live in together for one35 And then I meet two friends of hers that are both in the process of being pre-approved and they're going to buy after they get married. So that one phone call, when you work it right, turns into five to $6 million worth of sales. Now, not everybody's price points are going to be where I am in the Bay Area, but I don't think anybody out there would be too unhappy about getting six deals out of one phone call. And that was yeah. all information I got out of a podcast. Yeah. It was like, go help people move because it's not just, it's not just that service for them. You're going to meet the neighbors. You're going to meet the people. Yep. And, and you get all day to, for them to realize like, no matter what, even if it's not going to be next week when they buy or sell a house, when they buy or sell a house, they're going to call you. That's like, exactly right. Because you're friends with them now. You were there and you were there on moving day, sweating with them and, and going through all of that. You know, the, when I first met you, the, I mean, I don't know how many years ago it was now. We were, it was at, a, at the 
pizza place, spaghetti place in Roseville. Right? Yeah. And yeah. there's 10 of us sitting there, a bunch of our, our go abundance friends from our mastermind. And there's guys in there that have, you know, flipped a, a bunch of houses or had a bunch of apartments and things like that. And everybody shared their story. And it was the first time I met you. And I told you of all of us here, you have the most fascinating, most interesting story that everybody needs to hear because the, because of how you kind of started and you kind of went part-time into real estate at, at that beginning. The, can you tell us a little bit, a, a little bit about that? Like, you know, when you got into real estate, what was your day job? And, and as we yeah. were like, why is he doing this? How is he doing it? And how did you turn that into everything, right? The, the David Green team now, your investments, everything. Just talk about that transition for a little bit and the experience of life. So I'll give you guys as much of a summary as I can here. It's probably going to be kind of long-winded because it's, there is a lot to pull out of it that other people could benefit from. That's why I like to There's talk about so it. so much to benefit in this, for sure. If you listen to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, I think it was episode 12. I go into more detail about it. But the, the gist of it was I was working as a waiter and saving up as much money as I could while I was in college. I just worked, went to work, worked harder than all the other waiters, stayed later, got there earlier, worked more live with my parents, ate their leftover food. And, and like I had a cell phone and a gym and, and gas was the only things I really had to pay for, maybe car insurance. So when I graduated college, I had all my school paid for, no student debt and a little over $90,000 in the bank. And that was with taking about nine months off from work because I had broken my ankle playing basketball and I was on crutches for six months. It was really bad. So what I was thinking is, well, I'm gonna need to buy a house someday. And, and this was like, you know, oh five where just prices just kept going higher and higher. And yeah. I'm like, how do you ever buy a house? The more you save, the higher they go. And I, I wasn't going to buy one until I could afford it. But I knew at some point, I was like, fine, I'll just save up money and build one if that's what I have to do. And then I got a job as a deputy. I started working as a deputy sheriff and the housing market crashed in 2009, late 2009, 2010. It was just everything was for sale. So I bought my first house, which I had no intention of being a real estate investor. I had a friend who, was, who got into Bible school and he had a house in contract with like a $5,000 earnest money deposit. He was leaving, so he couldn't buy it. And he was telling me about it at church. And I'm like, oh, maybe I could buy it. I'll need a house someday. I'll have a family. I'll want to live in it. So uh, I drove and I looked at it and it was like, looked like a really good price. It was 215,000, like five years old, 2,500 square feet, needed nothing but to have the carpets vacuumed. So I ended up buying it instead of him. And then the agent was able to get me an even better price. I got it at 195. And I had a rental, like I didn't know what to do. So I just put it on Craigslist and I, I picked a tenant and I picked a horrible tenant and they basically took me for a ride. But I learned a lot, got a property manager, let them take care of it. Next year, kept saving up money. Another house went, came up for sale by where my mom was, bought that house. Next year, my grandma passed away. I bought her house. I now have three rentals. Uh, next year, I bought a fourplex, which was my first understanding of like, I mean, I didn't even look at ROI. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't really understand cash flow. I just knew that it would make more than it cost me to own it. And I just figured I'll just pick one of these houses to live in it one day, or maybe I'll pay them off. When I bought that fourplex, I realized like, oh my God, there's something here. Like this is a 34% ROI. But to me, that just meant I'll make my money back in three years. I didn't really understand that ROI was a metric that you should look at. Yeah. I need to buy a lot of these. And then the market took off on me and it was too late. That was 2013. All the boomerang buyers from 2010 that had short sales, they were now coming back into the market. And so I had to learn how to invest out of state. Well, once I realized like these rental properties are where it's at, you buy these houses, they cash flow, they keep going up in value. I keep paying down the rent. Interest rates are really low. I'm just going to work as much as I can to buy as many of these houses as I can. So I just started working as a cop, like literally every single day. 
double yeah. shifts, sleeping in my car, working seven days a week. I think in 2015, I took off like three days for the whole year. I just was working nonstop. And I started buying as many rentals as I can. And I did that until I realized that this was taking a really long time. And instead, I was just going to use the Burr method. So that was kind of where I learned what Burr was. And I put together that whole system. And I started buying, rehabbing, renting, refinancing, and repeating. And I had been working as a cop doing this. And then I met a couple of GoBundance guys, Aaron West and Daniel Ramsey and Daniel Del Real. And they were like, you're way too smart to be a cop, man. Like you need to at least go be a full-time investor or real estate agent or something. They forced me to commit to working no overtime that wasn't mandatory at my job for a year to get my real estate license. I did it. I didn't really love it, but it was still better than just being a cop in the Bay Area where you're completely hated. I did both for a while. And then right around the time that I left doing both is when I met you and uh, that story started. Yeah. The, there is so much to unpack there, right? So at first it was just working really, really hard and saving money <clears throat> and, and, and living frugally mm-hmm. to figure out like how to invest. And it was mostly like it wasn't even supposed to be as an investor. It was like, yep. I need a house because everybody yep. needs a house. Everybody wants a house. And then you had continued to do more and more. And about that time I met you, I think you had, you had just become an agent also, but you were still a police officer. And I remember thinking like of all, you had so much, you were making good money from mm-hmm. your rentals. And I was like, why would you be out risking your life <laughs> doing that right now? But that's truly the example of one of the dreams out there for people that, that decide they, they want to invest or they want to get into real estate, but they have this, like these good, solid, like stable jobs. Like how do they make that transition? And the, and there's been so many times I've told people to like reach out to you and follow you. And they're like, Hey, I've got this really good job but I also want to start doing this. What could that transition be like and what could they learn? Cause you, you went through that and you got to see, you know, being, being a cop and being an investor and, and going through that. And then really how that was able to convert to become a, a, a very successful real estate agent using that, that personal stuff to where now you, uh, you know, people don't, you know, you said everybody hates real estate agents, but the, <laughs> but man, uh, police officers in the Bay area get such a bad rap, such a rough job that you were doing, but for you, it was a means to the end. You were gonna you were gonna work hard and you were gonna make money to invest in this other career and now you're like David Green 2.0 this new part of your career. So let's talk about so Burr method for a second. You have several books you know published through Bigger Pockets. You know part part of the the podcast there that we'll probably talk about. But the but the Burr method. Tell us what is that method and the and does someone need to be an agent to do that? Do you think all agents should do it? Does it help you a lot? So the Burr method is a, it's an acronym that stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And it's not nearly as complicated as it sounds. You're just moving around the order in which you buy a property and fix it up and refinance it. Typically, you finance a property when you buy it, then you fix it up, then you rent it out. And the problem with that method is you sink 20 to 25% of a down payment into the house, then another 10 to 20% of the house's value into the rehab. So you've got this house that you made worth a lot more than what you paid for it. So you've got some equity, which is great, but you don't have any capital. And my philosophy is that you make your money when you buy. I think you would agree with that, Aaron. It doesn't yeah. matter. If you buy the deal wrong, you're going to be tempted to spend more than you should on the rehab or try to skimp on the commission to the agent. It's only going to hurt you more. You have to buy right if you want to make money in real estate. And what do you need to buy? You need capital. Right. If you can raise other people's money, the Burr money isn't the Burr method isn't as important if you can raise other people's money. But most people, when they're getting started, they're not in that position. So what I realized was if I buy it for cash or hard money or someone else's money or something, and then I put money into the rehab, let's say I buy it for 60 and I spend 30 to fix it up, I've got 90 into it. I can then refinance when I'm done and take out 75% of the value of that house or sometimes 80%. 
So if that house appraises for 120,000 and I've got 90 in the deal, the bank will write me a check for $90,000 and I'll still have $30,000 of equity into that deal. But more importantly, I got back my 90 grand. I can go buy my next house because you make your money when you buy. So the velocity of your money increases rapidly. I can take the same 90 grand and I can buy say a house every six months. So two houses a year with the same 90 grand. Well, that 90 grand, if I put $30,000 of equity into each house is bringing me back $60,000 a year in equity, plus whatever the appreciation is going to be, plus whatever the cash flow is on those deals, plus all the experience that I gain buying more properties. We get good at things the more we do them. Like that's why agents who sell two houses a year never really get very good at being an agent. What can you be good at that you do two times a year? Well, while I'm doing that, I'm saving up another $90,000. And now I've got two of those $90,000 wheels that are churning that are each adding $60,000 a year of equity and a couple hundred bucks a month of cash flow every single time and more experience. And now wholesalers are coming to me with their best deals because I'm the one buying them all. They want to keep me happy. Contractors are giving me better rates because I'm keeping all their guys employed. Lenders are giving me better deals because I'm doing more deals with them. Everything gets easier because I'm doing this more often. So that was the Burr method. I wrote a book on that called Buy, Rehab, Rent, Refinance, Repeat. It's, it's published by Bigger Pockets. I think it's the number two best-selling book on Amazon right now for the real estate category. It's doing really well. And all that you have to understand is if you just try to sink big down payments into properties, you'll run out of money. If you put your money in, you make the property worth more, you build equity, then you refinance and get that capital back. You can do this with more volume. You know, the, so Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, one of the, one of the things he talks about is having an infinite return, right? Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning, you said like, here's the ROI on the property. So if I buy a house for $100,000 and it rents and I make $10,000 a year, I make 10% ROI, like, you know, 10% on the money I have invested. So, Mm -hmm. so, which is good, right? A lot of people say, yeah, 10% return on your money. But what you're saying is you're going to buy it. You're going to add value. And instead of leaving that money sunk and just get a 10% ROI, you're going to get a loan for $100,000 on it because now it's worth 150, mm-hmm. right? You get that money back. And so now you don't have any money invested. You've got all your money back. And that becomes that infinite return that Robert Kiyosaki talks about because you don't have any money invested in it, yet you still make money every month. And you can do that as many times as you want. And that asset grows in value. You've still got equity in there. If you need to sell it, it's still, it's still real estate. It's still liquid. You can cash it out. The Let's talk about the bigger po- bigger pockets bigger pockets podcast mm-hmm. bigger pockets podcast if if our if you're one of our listeners and you've been living under a rock it's the you know it's the the biggest podcast out there for real estate investing you know so many different people we've got so many so you know you guys I, I love listening to it you guys are my friends over there we actually had Scott Trench on here uh, in a segment we you know we've been doing as a side segment called what makes a CEO and talk to him about uh, you know him phasing into becoming the CEO when uh, you know when he started taking over from Josh and he brought you on full time and the bigger and the podcast just kind of exploded and and took off the how, how has it been for you to to work over with, with bigger pockets how how much fun has that been you know with, with Scott and Brandon and all the guys and 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 what's next over there yeah what's cool about BP is I was a huge fan of their website. They interviewed me on their podcast. That's how I got to know those guys. And then they said, I did a really good job. So I said, hey, can I, can I write on your blog? And they said, okay, here's the blog person. I went to the blog person and said, what does it look like to be the best blog writer here? What would the blogs look like? And she said, well, they'd have to be really long. People like those. They'd have to be on these topics and they'd have to be written this way. So I, instead of just writing the way that was comfortable for me, I tailored my writing to fit what that 
blog person, Allison, was saying she wanted it to look like. And lo and behold, Allison starts tagging all of my blogs as like editor's choice, right? This is the best one. Everyone should read it. She's putting it at the top. Now I'm getting a lot of positive comments. People really like what I'm writing. And I'm going back to her and saying, hey, what's the stuff that's trending on the site? What are the topics everybody's looking at? She would tell me, I'd write a blog article about that. Allison really liked me. So then when they decided they wanted to publish more books, they came to me and they said, hey, would you want to write a book? I said, sure. They said, what topic? I said, what about long distance investing? I don't think really anyone does that. I wrote that book. The book did well. Then because I wrote a book that did well, next year I said, can I write another book? Sure. What do you want to write it on? How about the Burr method? Sounds good. Get that book deal. Write that book. That book does really well. I said, hey, can I come on the podcast to talk about the new book? Now I'm on a second time. Now I'm good at doing podcasts because when I, when I, I didn't mention, but when I released my first book, I went on this like podcast tour of 40, 50 different podcasts to talk about it because I really wanted bigger pockets to see, hey, I'm trying to make you guys some money. I'm trying to sell a lot of books here. But I improved my skills just talking, articulating thought and explaining how real estate works. So the second time I did the podcast, it went really, really good. And then, you know, at that point, I had built up different skills. I had some credibility from the blog writing and the two book sales. So when Josh Dworkin said, hey, I think I'm going to step down. I'm not doing the podcast anymore. They were kind of just plugging random people from the company in to do it with Brandon. Brandon said, hey, why don't we get David? This guy's really good. He put me in. People really liked me. The next thing I know, I'm the co-host of the biggest podcast for real estate in the world. And I realized like this just got real. I got to get really good at learning what makes a good podcast. So just like I had talked to Allison and said, what do you have to do to write a good blog? I started researching who have the best podcasts. I started listening to Joe Rogan all the time. He has a huge, huge podcast. And I would learn, Joe communicates with people this way. This is how he gets them to say good stuff. This is when he interjects and this is how long he interjects for. And I would listen to other podcasts as well. I'd listen to our own podcast and I would cringe sometimes like, oh, why did I say that? Or why did I not jump in here? And then I'd remember that the next time that we were recording. And I just really wanted to be good at doing that job. And I think that what I found is I've had so many levels up in the last three years or four as far as my own success. I would attribute like 100% of that to the fact that when I get an opportunity, I want to be good at it. I just want to be good, right? I, what does it take to be good at this? I really want to learn how to do it. And I think you can agree, Aaron, as someone who's a business owner, we are constantly looking for somebody who cares and wants to be good. It's this never ending cycle. Like all we hear is people that say, I wish I had a better job. I wish I made more money. I wish I had financial freedom. They all want the result of being good at something, but very few people actually care enough to want to go be good at it. And it drives me crazy because what you hear people that are not business owners talking about is how there's no opportunity, there's no chance, there's so much inequality in the world. But then when you actually own a business, you're just dying for somebody who cares to come in and do their very best and ask questions like, what would it take to be good at this? And then really pursue it. And when you see them, you're like, oh my God, give that person everything. Give her whatever she wants. Give her a raise, give her money, give her an opportunity to make more money for both of us. Like give everything you can to that person. It's, it's a fallacy that there's no opportunity in the world. There's a ton of it. People like us are scouring everyone we know to say like, who would be good? Who could I bring in? And I think I'm just a case study. And if you give a crap, and you try hard at something, doors just start opening. Like opportunities just start coming. Most of the time, it's our own head that's getting in the way from us being more successful. I absolutely agree. Anything you want to do in life, 
whether it's in, in real estate or whether it's certain you know, clients that you want to represent or certain deals or, or anything out there. We're looking for the person that's, that is staying late and asking a ton of questions mm-hmm. and listening to their craft. Like, like even as an agent, you could be you know, listening to that, you know, the, the recording of that phone call of, of did the script go good or did it not? Like, like not just studying other people but restudying your own stuff. I had a, I, I, there was a public speaker that I was watching one day and he was saying, you know, the way he got good at public speaking was the, you know, he'd spent hours, you know, watching every recording of his speech instead and then redoing it mm. as if, oh, if I would have done that right, I would have done this instead. It's like constant studying, constant loving it. Like you were a huge fan. You were a huge fan of bigger pockets uh, out there and you kept learning and providing value. And the, and now at, as a group, you guys are, you know, providing so much value for real estate investors out there and the, you know, and it's, and I think it's, it's really cool that you've also taken um, along the way, like you started as an investor and then you became an agent and then you've kind of got all these different tips that really helps you build your team. You know, I went to a, a meetup up in Roseville when you guys were given a presentation to local people that was like, Hey, here's, here's like an investment going on. You know, here's some possible ways to invest in the real estate market. You know, if you guys are interested, you know, we're agents in the area. Let us, let us do that. It seemed like that was probably a niche where you guys were getting lots of buyers. And it even made me think like, I'm an investor all the time. And it was in my local place that I hadn't been thinking about. I'm like, oh, maybe I should look at investing down there. You know, they know what they're talking about. The, what tips would you give to, if you were looking back at yourself as an, as a young agent, I mean, your, your transition of, of, of an agent was kind of funny, but if, if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I want to be really successful as a real estate agent. What's one thing I should be doing, or what's one mm. thing that that you know, I mean, you shared a couple at the beginning. What's another thing you would tell somebody of if you want to increase production now, or you know, if you want mm. to be successful in real estate agent? You know, we talked about falling in love with the problem. You know, we talked about some of those. Anything else you could think of? Yeah, I'll give you a principle, and then I'll give you some like actual actionable steps. One of the things that I see on the Bigger Pockets podcast that stops people from making money in real estate is they want to start with where they are. And they want someone to give them a step-by-step process to get where they want to go. And they won't move until they know every single step. It's this idea that we have that we never want to make mistakes. We don't want to lose anything. And we don't feel comfortable moving until someone gives us a perfect process. But as you and I know, Aaron, like you're buying problems when you buy good deals. They come with it, right? And there's no way that you can anticipate every problem that's going to occur. It's much more like being in a fight. I know that this guy that I'm trying to fight maybe has a boxing background or a wrestling background. I know that there's tendencies that they're going to want to do. Just like I know houses in this area are likely going to have these problems or a seller in this position is likely going to have this problem. But when the fight starts, I don't know what order he's going to throw punches or what he's going to do to me. All I can do is practice and train and, and trust my gut when I have to respond to what they're doing and understand principles of fighting. I don't want him to mount me. I don't want him to take my back. I want to be able to use this to stuff what he's trying to do to me. And I want to counter with these types of things. And the best fighters are very instinctively good. They've seen it over and over and over. They don't ask, well, what, what is everything that's going to happen? in this and sports are the same way football teams do not know when they run this running play where every defender is going to be at all times they have to respond to what's in front of them right the best people that i've seen that are successful don't say where i am what are the steps to go forward they actually say where do i want to be and they work backwards from that point to get to where they are so one of the things that drives me nuts about our industry is agents will usually say how do i find leads okay but they don't really want leads. What they're actually saying is, how do I find easy leads? How do I find people that are so motivated that I don't have to be that good at my job 
they'll, they'll just buy a house, right? Every agent does three to four deals a year. And that's because you get three to four easy ones a year. Your sister wants to buy a house. Your mom wants to sell her house. Your next door neighbor wants to sell their house. You get someone who's like, hey, I'm moving from out of state. I have a family with two small kids. I need a house. Everybody can close that person, right? Yep. What we should be saying is, what does somebody want in a real estate agent? And how do I become that? And then the leads will kind of find you when you can close the difficult ones. So an example would be, I, I never tell people, oh, you should buy Zillow leads or you should use Boomtown or there's these platforms that are going to just hand you what you want because the, the clients, they're not thinking like that. They're not thinking I'm somebody's lead and I'm supposed to do whatever they tell me to do. Put yourself in their head. They're thinking I'm scared. I don't know how real estate works. This is a huge deal. I don't know what all these fancy terms that people keep throwing around like contingencies and EMD and you know, like, I don't know what all this means. What's a, what's an FHA loan? What's a VA loan? Like I hear people say FHA loan all the time. And what they really mean is low down payment. <laughs> they, they just think that that's what FHA means. They don't understand. It means federal housing administration. And it's a very specific loan program. The better you can explain to the people you're working with how this whole thing works in a way that takes away their fear and uncertainty of what's going and reduces their anxiety, the closer that they'll stick to you and the more likely they'll be to move forward. So that's, as the answer of your question, what do you have to do to get more business? You start off by falling in love with real estate. You're asking questions all the time. What is a lender's job? What is an appraiser's job? What does a title company do? What is, don't even call it the MLS until you've explained to people what MLS even means. They don't know and they don't want to say that they don't know what that means, right? Just call it the place where all their, their realtors put their listings. And then you can explain how the history of the MLS started. Now you look really smart. Now they're more likely to trust you. So when it comes to how do I find clients, you can hold a hundred open houses, right? But if you just stand there and you watch people sign in and you wait for them to come to you and say, will you be my agent? It's not going to work out very well for you because the client isn't looking for somebody that's like a random person they can just walk up to and say, will you be my agent? They just know they're scared and they want someone that makes them feel better. So you have to talk about real estate constantly. Everywhere you go, you got to be in love with it. You have to be telling people what the market's doing, a cool thing that just happened in a transaction you had, some new law that's passed and how that benefits buyers or benefits sellers. You have to be basically setting yourself up as the person that knows all the answers, loves doing this job, and the people who listen to you start to feel comfortable. They feel less scared, right? That's what you're really trying to do is you're just understanding sellers are afraid. They're afraid that they're going to pay too much in commissions. They're afraid they're not going to get their house sold for enough. They're afraid the market's going to going to gonna tank before they can sell. They're afraid the market's going to go up if they sell right now. They're always afraid. You have to be able to answer questions that make them feel like this is the right move. And buyers have all their own things that they're afraid of. And you have to be able to put them at ease. If agents would stop looking for the magic pill that would give them leads, which is kind of like, just give me a hostage. Like this person has to sell their house and they're just going to use me without knowing me. And instead they thought, well, what would I feel like if I was in that situation? What would I want to hear? And they worked backwards from there. You would see like people's businesses would just explode. Yeah. What do I want? Yeah, putting yourself in their shoes and the, and not thinking about them as a lead and what you can do and loving, you know, loving real estate, listening yep. to the podcast, listening to the stuff, figuring out what's going on in the news. The real estate is just a fascinating, fascinating thing, right? Cause it's yeah. not necessarily a job. It's not, a, it's not a career. It's not a investment. It's, it's bigger than that. Like real estate means so many things. It's, it's investing, it's buying and selling, it's, it's houses, it's land. And 
and it's super cool, man. And I'm a, and I'm a super fun student of real estate. I love all sorts of deals, all sorts of different things out there and, and how it works. And I think that does help so much. It also helps when we find that problem or falling in love with that problem. You might find by loving real estate so much and studying it and figuring out what's out there, you might find that niche of that special mm-hmm. buyer that needs you. Or you might find that you're the guy that loves door knocking. Or you might find you're the person that loves helping people move finding those different things out there, but you're, that you get that from being you know, involved and loving it and then really treating people like people. You, you gave the example of when you helped the person move, you got all those different you know, leads from it, but that was really because you were like a person helping mm-hmm. a person, like carrying a couch and talking to the person on the other end of that couch. Like all of a sudden now you're David Green, the person, and, the, uh, and you can do so much. The- and it, it worked because everybody's afraid that that agent's going to take advantage of me. Right. I, I'm in the same boat. If I got to go talk to a lawyer because like I want to sue someone or I'm getting sued, I don't know yeah. how that works. I'm going to be scared. Can I trust you? Is what you're charging me what you charge everybody else? Are you taking advantage of me? Do you ever like the process, Aaron, of when you go buy a car? Well, you're a freak. You might actually like yeah. doing that because you negotiate so well. No, but I went to the doctor yesterday and I'm having to think like, is this like, should I be negotiating this? Like, yeah. you, like, what, like what's going on here? Because you don't yeah. know that doctor, but it's your family doctor. You don't feel that way. Right. I trust what I'm at they're a, telling you. Yeah, I'm at a random one in, in, in Maui. The, That's where the yeah. fear comes from, right? I've That's never exactly met right. So as an agent, they don't know me. They're supposed to be scared of me. They don't know me from the next guy. Of course, they're worried about if I'm going to charge too much or they're not going to sell their house. I mean, like I was just saying, nobody knows if their agent's any good. All they know is what we tell them. You have to understand that. It's normal for them to feel scared. So when I show them, I'm willing to sweat through my shirt at 105 degree weather, walk up and down stairs, play with my client's little kid. It's obviously not just about a commission for me. I have a relationship with this couple and they were friends and I would never burn them because of that. It makes it easy for them to trust me. That's all that it was. They didn't even know I'm smart or I'm good. They didn't understand that I can make them more money than another agent. All they knew is we trust that guy. We're not as afraid of him because we've seen what he's like. So that's another big part of being a real estate agent is develop those relationships first. So it takes away the fear. And once the fear is gone, most people don't know what agent they're going to use. The minute they find one they can trust, they're like, boom, you're my guy. Yeah. Well, they want to have a... a they don't want to have a stupid question, right? Because they're, cause they're, they, and if they trust you, they're willing to actually say like, could I actually qualify for a house right now? Or could I actually buy it? Because so many people think about real estate, but if they're not in it all the time as potential clients, you know, you, you want to be so approachable that they love you already. They're like, hey, David, you know, maybe I can't buy this, but what if the three of us go buy a house together? Is that a thing? You're like, yeah, no, I was telling you, yeah, we can totally do that. Yeah, you want to be saying that stuff. People do that all the time and I can show you exactly what to do. It's not as hard as you think. Yeah. Just right. having the, the conversations and knowing people. So the, as we, as we wrap this up, this has been just an, an awesome hour. I mean, just getting to chat with my friend, but the, but getting to talk about stuff that we, that we love as we get to catch up. What is next for the David Green team out in the Bay area? Like, are you going to try to get more team members? How many, you have a big goal this year for houses, things like that. What's, what's next for you in real estate? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. My biggest struggle is finding agents that are confident and competent that can come in. And I just have way too many leads that I can keep up with right now. I've done a great job of generating leads, but now I'm the only one that can close it because most of the agents on my team are new. So if I get an agent that's willing to learn my system, willing to be, be coachable, even if they're like a really good producer, I can guarantee I could take them up higher than what they're doing by giving them leads and training differently than what they've thought. So I'm definitely looking to hire agents for my team. I'm in really bad need of another admin or two that are really good. 
because my system's kind of designed with uh you ever heard that saying that like look like a duck you're calm on the surface but underneath your feet are, are spinning like furiously okay, yeah. under the water right yeah. that's my admin they're running around like crazy doing the lion's share of all the work and the agent looks really calm when they talk to the client presenting the information that the admin went and found for him so i need a couple more of those admin that i can bring in and they can help and then i'm actually in the process of uh starting a mortgage company now too where i'll be able to start like doing loans for our clients or other agents client. Cause that's another problem with the industry is it's really hard to find a good lender. Most lenders aren't giving a ton of value back to the agents. They're just getting leads from the agents. So I'm looking to like figure out a way to stop that. I just, I've fallen in love with real estate. I love every aspect of it. Right. Yeah, I love representing saying. sellers. I love helping buyers find houses. I love explaining it. I love flipping houses. I love working on the loans. I love buying rental properties. I think if you're just if you're not some guy that understands how to computer code like a whiz or has some super specific skill set, real estate is the best way to build wealth for yourself in a boring and slow way over a long period of time that becomes incredibly powerful. Yeah, man, we 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 do love real estate around here. So you guys heard it. If you've got a if you've got a referral, if you've got a friend or family member in the Bay Area the, that needs an agent, have them reach out. Have them listen to this. See if David's a person that they want to talk to, that he's trustworthy, they want to go work with. Or if you're an agent out there in the Bay Area and the and you're needing leads and somebody helps you grow, I think that's. I didn't realize you were hiring on your team and and, and growing it. I think that is super cool. I'm excited about the the mortgage company for you. So the so people go reach out to David. The David, what's the easiest way to find you? The uh, you, we got all your social handles. What what do you like? To, where do you yeah, want? Yeah, my to find my you? social handles are David Green twenty four. There's an E at the end of Green. So Instagram is the best way to get a hold of me. Um, that's like. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that. It's all David Green 24. My email is davidgreen at kw.com. That's another uh, good way to get a hold of me. Just make sure you're very clear in your, like in the email, what it is you're looking for. So I know the best way to get back to people. But messaging me on Instagram is probably the best way to get my attention. I try to keep that inbox as close to zero as I can actually get it. And we're actually, like you mentioned, we're in Sacramento as well. There's a lot of people that are leaving the Bay Area and moving to Sacramento. Yeah, so got the Sacramento team. Yeah, I, I put a Sacramento branch together for that also. That's another really good market. Yeah, the, uh, well, so, and I can tell you guys, David is a super, super approachable guy. You look at it on Instagram, he's got, you know, tens of 30, 40,000 followers, something like that. But the, you know, he, he's a, an approachable guy, real guy. And the, and, you know, for us, for listeners also, the, we're at RE Rockstars on Instagram or at Aaron Amuchastegui on Instagram. You know, a lot of the guys that I've been interviewing, you know, this week that are going to be up over the next few weeks, you guys are going to be listening to are people that reached out to me on Instagram and said, Hey, here's my story. Can you interview me on Real Estate Rockstars? Rockstars. So looking for more people out there. Go give us a review. Tell us how you did today. David, like I said, I've been trying to get you on here for so long. Thanks for coming on to talk about real estate. You are definitely a pro and uh, that was a ton of fun. So it was a blast, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll have you on again soon. Rockstar Nation. Thank you for listening to Real Estate Rockstars. Listen, I need a favor. If you find this free content helpful, if you find our downloadable items from each guest helpful please I need you to pull out your pointing finger yes the one finger that points at people and hit subscribe yes subscribe the more subscribers we get the better we look in the ratings and the easier it is to get guests like Robert Kiyosaki Barbara Corcoran all the players that are on the million dollar listing in the different cities all that stuff makes it easier the more subscribers we get. So please subscribe. And listen, there's a lot of places you can leave comments. There's a lot of places you can like. We're on Facebook. 
We have an Instagram page. Instagram page is I am Pat Hyben. The Facebook is Real Estate Rockstars Radio. Feel free to leave us comments there. The most popular form of commenting seems to happen on YouTube. Yes, for whatever reason, it's a very open environment. So just go to YouTube and go to Real Estate Rockstars Radio and leave us comments there. Some of them we will read on the show. And we love your feedback. So thanks, guys, and I hope you are having a great day. Oh, and also, listen, if you're going to subscribe and you haven't already left us a, a review on iTunes, please do that, too. Have a great day, and thanks so much, Rockstar Nation. I really appreciate you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.